Welcome to the Laravel Podcast. My name is Matt Stauffer. I got two guys joining me. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? I'm Taylor Otwell, creator of Laravel. And I'm Jeffrey Way, cheerleader of Laravel. <laughs> I love when that whole thing happened the other week where there's like, follow these people on PHP, follow these, these Twitter people, uh, PHP. It was like, all these people have these different, like, creator of this framework, creator of Laracast, creator of whatever. It was like Matt Stauffer, blogger. <laughs> we don't know what this guy does, but he's kind of around. So, <laughs> hey, I'm happy I made it in. All right. So this week, we got a lot going on. So the 5.1, Laravel 5.1 improvements have just kind of continued nonstop. They just keep coming and coming. And Taylor, you've dedicated three solid weeks to just really digging in the documentation. And we've talked a lot about how the devotion to really good documentation and really working on a good community is like a really core aspect of Laravel being what it is and caring about the community. So what, what's been going on? What's the last couple of weeks of documentation improvement look like? What have you discovered? What have you been working on? What gems do you have? So one thing I found out as I've been working on documentation is I thought the Laravel documentation was good, but as I've worked through it, I've realized that um, in a lot of ways it kind of sucked. Like it was, it was, not, it was kind of disjointed and out of context a lot of times. And so I've gone. I'm on my. Uh, let's see. This is my second pass through every page of the documentation. And every page has so much more detail. And like the examples are so much more realistic and they show more code so that you can see where where I'm doing something and not just like one line. And I just don't make a lot of assumptions about what you know. So they're much more newbie friendly, I guess you could say. But especially like um, some of the some of the more like tangible changes are there's better uh, subheading links. So when you go to a page you can see like the top level links, but then also there's usually a few subheadings so you can quickly jump to something pretty specific. Um, the eloquent documentation is broken up into, I think, four pages now instead of just one page. So it kind of gets its own full section, which it makes it not quite so monolithic when you go to the eloquent docs and it's like just scrolling forever and you can kind of break it down and learn it in chunks. Um, so you can learn like the eloquent basics and then you can learn about relationships and then uh, mutators and, and JSON serialization and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just every page is just significantly improved everything from top to bottom, basically. And I think it's just kind of goes back, like I've always said that documentation is basically one of the most important things for an open source project. And if you have a big project that has like really lacking documentation, I think really your project can be really vulnerable to being, um, to becoming, you know, abandoned or irrelevant because no one knows how to use it. Even if it's very um, technically sound and really advanced, if no one knows how to use it or can maintain their projects on it, then um, no one's going to use it. So really, usually the, the the projects with the best documentation are the most popular usually. And I don't think that's really a coincidence. I think that if you have a good user experience and something's easy to learn, then people are going to use your, your project. I mean, that even goes back to the CodeIgniter days because CodeIgniter by far had the best documentation, even over Cake or, or Zend or whatever else was popular at the time. And didn't you also say that as you were going through the documentation, it actually made you uh, make some changes. So like the first one that comes to my mind is when you were talking about going through uh, the artisan documentation, you ended up rewriting a lot of that. Yeah, Is that true? I ended up writing a whole new way to to define like what inputs and, and arguments your commands expect because like as I was reading the documentation, I can just see like this is really lame. Like it's just I don't I would not want to code this way. 
um, because you were like having to define these weird arrays of arguments and options that matched like the signature of the symphony objects. And it was just like really unintuitive and weird. And so I created this new way to basically define your inputs and arguments in one kind of like, it's almost like a route, like a route string where you say um, command name and then in brackets, you can have your argument name and then maybe like in um, you can put like a question mark after the argument to make it optional. And so it's a very fluent um, expressive way to define your command line stuff. And it's so much faster and easier than mucking around with, you know, a bunch of arrays and weird arguments. Yeah, that would always get annoying. I've been doing it for a couple of years, and I still had to constantly refer back to, like, when you're when you're defining your options, it's like, okay, which which one is the fourth item in this array? Which one is the abbreviation? I'd always have to go back and and refer to the documentation. So it's much better now. Once you do it once or twice, you you'll have it memorized basically, and I don't think you'll ever have to look back on how to define a command. So one of the things I've noticed is that I, I've been trying to get better at blogging quickly. I can talk to you guys about this a bit before where I want to come up with an idea, write the outline, spit the blog out and be done in like an hour. And one of the things I find hardest is making sure that when I'm writing quickly, I have like the right tone and I'm I'm segmenting things in a really logically consistent way. And Taylor, I've noticed that especially in the documentation, you just spit something out and it's like really good documentation. Do you... Do you have a trick or a mental state you get yourself into both in terms of writing good documentation, but also in terms of like, as the person who probably is more familiar with the framework than anybody else, how do you put yourself in the mindset of someone who's coming to it who isn't familiar with it? Um, I just, this, this time through the documentation, I've just tried to not make any assumptions really it has been one of the biggest things. And uh, I read over even though I'm going through the pages, you know, this is my second pass through on each paragraph. I might read over it three or four times to make sure it makes sense. One thing that's also really helpful, I think is um, if you're writing documentation is to read this book called elements of style. It's a really popular um, book on writing and it's only like 50 pages. It's more like a booklet. It's not even really a book. Um, It's only like 50 pages but it, it talks about writing clearly and simply, and it's sort of like a minimalist guide to writing. And it's a really helpful book, and I still use a lot of things uh, from that to help kind of make things clear and straightforward instead of like convoluted and a lot of unnecessary uh, verbiage. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It looks like you can get it on Amazon for like five or six bucks. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's get moving on. So the documentation is great. If you haven't taken a look, uh, dear listeners, take a look at the the new documentation. It's live. If you just go and you use the switcher and you switch over to master instead of uh, 4.1 or 4.2 or, or 5.0, if you go to master, you're, you can actually see the, the live stuff right now. And I've, I've actually literally been using it lately. Anytime I want to go to documentation, I go to the master docs because I know it's going to be uh, heads and whatever the, the phrase is. It's going to be way, way better than what we had before. So it's really a joy using it. Um, so we have a few more improvements that came are are coming soon in Laravel 5.1 um, that we haven't been able to cover yet. So uh, I got two uh, two on the plate. So the first one is um, the ability to resolve a service from Blade. So one of you guys tell me a little bit about that. How's that work? Uh, so there's a new syntax in Blade where you can do at sign inject, um, and then you can pass it a container binding. And what that does is. Um, it basically just it gives you that service out of the container, and you also pass the variable name that you want it to be available as. So I can say like at inject, um, and then let's say stats, and then maybe statistic service or uh, maybe like revenue reporter, 
And like, I think the example I give in the docs is it's kind of useful if you have something that's really kind of simple, like you're going to show, maybe you want to show like your monthly revenue in your top bar if you're the admin user or something. And you have sort of this like reporting class that lets you get like monthly revenue, yearly revenue, or some other stats for your service. And it's kind of useful for getting stuff like that out of the container and just using it directly in a view instead of trying to, um, instead of having to create it in the controller, pass it down through the view. So for quick little stuff like that, it's it's sort of useful. And um, uh, I, I've used it once for, for that particular purpose in, um, in Envoy or so. It's just kind of a new little thing. It's not like an earth shattering thing, but I think it's it's pretty useful for some situations. So is it just like a, a, a blade wrapper around app make? Is that basically what it is? Yeah. Yeah, essentially. It just lets you have a little blade syntax for that. Would you see it as kind of like a, a shortcut version of like a view composer where you're just saying we need this particular thing every time we have this view, we need it. And maybe you don't want to build a full view composer just for this one thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was inspired by a new feature in um, .NET Razor in their latest I always check the release notes for basically every major framework, but in their latest release, they had that, and I thought it looked pretty cool, so I dropped it into Blade. Cool. Well, I've also seen uh, there's quite a bit of work going on in Elixir, and I know some of the Elixir work is kind of normalizing the API so that things kind of, you're, you're going to approach all the JavaScript and the SAS and the LAS and the CoffeeScript in, in more kind of consistent ways where it's like if you know how to use one, using the other is going to be the same. And, and maybe, Jeffrey, you can talk a little bit about the changes there. And I also know that you guys did some work on ES6 and other. So, I mean, I don't think I know everything that's going on. So what what has improved in Elixir? A lot of this stuff is brand new. So uh, the first one, this was um, Taylor's request. If you're using CoffeeScript still, right now, if you were to say, like in your gulp file, mix.coffee, and then you passed an array of files... What it'll basically do is just compile all of those files and export them to your public slash JS folder. Um, so what Taylor wanted to do is treat it a little more like SAS. So what will happen now in Laravel 5.1 is when you call mix.coffee, it's going to compile everything down, but then it's also going to concatenate those files together. So like if you give a, um, I don't know, like a frontend.coffee and a backend.coffee two files, when you pass that to the coffee method for Elixir, it will compile them, it will concatenate them, and then it'll save it to public slash js slash all.js. So now you can just import that single file. So that's one change, just to make it a little more consistent with, um, with SAS. And then the other one we made was um, Babel support. Babel is like a, a compiler specifically for the latest that JavaScript has to offer. So like ECMAScript 6 and even some of the experimental stuff with, with ES7. Well, now what's cool is that's straight out of the box. So like, let's say you need to uh, concatenate some files. Okay, you would say mix.scripts, and then you would pass an array of files that you want to merge together. Well, now within any of those files, you can use any of this new ECMAScript 6 stuff. Like if you want to use um, the new arrow syntax or you want to use uh, a class syntax or you want to use, uh, what else? There's so much new stuff. The new syntax for uh, creating methods where you don't actually have to type out function uh, and all that stuff or have commas separating your, your object methods. All of that stuff, you can just use it and you don't have to do a single thing to make that work. When you run mix.scripts, we'll automatically uh, translate that through the Babel compiler. And then once you get your, your merged file, once it's all compiled down, it'll work in any browser. 
So yeah, that, that's one I'm especially excited about because this stuff, like you, you got to figure it out, you know? And so the people who are early adopters, they'll go and figure it out. But everyone else, it's like, you know what? I got stuff I got to do today. I don't have time to figure out like how I install this and how I call it. You don't have to do anything now. It'll just work straight out of the box. I know I'm being a dead horse here, but what you just told me was there's yet a new, another new technology that we all want to learn, and we just took away one of the steps for people who aren't early adopters to get started on it. It seems like this is a repeating trend here or something. <laughs> and once again, it's funny. Some people will say that's dangerous. Some, some people will say, oh, you're, you're dumbing everything down, and you're making people not developers, which is just absurd. God forbid we make this stuff simpler. But yeah, that's, that's very, very cool. That's cool. So I, I, I know that uh, ECMAScript 6, ES6 has been coming up a lot. And every single time we've got new versions of our framework, frameworks coming out and our languages coming out, we kind of want to know what's coming up. And it's very interesting because some people have been just really, you know, really into ES6. But JavaScript has tended not to be as much the type of language where you say, oh, well, there's the new version coming out. I mean, and people probably are even saying, wait, what is ES6? Why is it not JavaScript 6? What's going on here? So I feel like we maybe some of us are really celebrating and have dug deep into like what ES6 is and why it's bringing benefit. And I know that there's no way we have enough time to cover it. But Jeffrey, could you give either like a short kind of top level pitch or maybe any just particular features that are just most exciting to you about what is ES6 and why are we excited about it coming up? And, and why is it beneficial to make it you know easier to, to be able to write our JavaScript using it? Sure. Well, first, ECMAScript, that's just the language. And JavaScript is an implementation of that language. But really, for all intents and purposes, even though this isn't entirely true, you can think of them as synonymous. So when you hear about ECMAScript 6, just think of this as, as the new JavaScript stuff that you'll eventually be able to use. And I say eventually because while the latest and greatest browsers are starting to implement some of this stuff, of course, we still have to account for, for older browsers and IE9 and things like that. So that's where a compiler like Babel.js comes into play. So Babel.js basically gives you all of the ECMAScript 6 stuff and even some of the experimental stuff from ECMAScript 7, and it makes all of this stuff available to you right now. It's just a compiler. So it compiles it down to vanilla JavaScript that any browser will be able to recognize, which means you can play with this stuff right now, whether it's the new arrow syntax or the new class syntax, which I'm really excited about, or even some shorthand stuff like the ability to for methods in an object, you can exclude the actual function keyword. All of this stuff makes a huge difference, at least in my mind. And that's just scraping the surface. Yeah, since I've been writing JavaScript more heavily, which is probably the last three years versus just kind of like little binding elements and interactions and stuff like that. I think there's been a, a, a lot of places where it's like, okay, you roll your eyes and you're like, well, this is the way we kind of hack JavaScript to do what we want it to do. And I bet that Node developers or IO whatever developers have that issue even more, right? Because they're actually writing their backend code with it. So I, I, as I don't, I'm not a pro on all the changes that are coming in ES6, but of the things that I've seen, I think it's very similar to what you're saying, which is a lot of them are just seeing the things that irritate us about writing JavaScript and take away some of the pain, which is, which is really nice because you never know, like, is a new frame or is a new release actually going to target the things you care about? And it seems like ES6 is really hitting a lot of the things that bother you in relatively everyday tasks just conveniences with syntax and and classical structures and stuff like that so i'm going to check out that um the 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 thing and we'll put it in the show notes the 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 learn uh learn es6 2015 thing for sure 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great educational resource. Well, staying on the JavaScript train for a minute. So um, there's, you know, the, all the jokes going around about there's like a sign at, a, at an office that says number of days. And it looks like the number of days since the last accident. And it's number of days since the, the last uh, new JavaScript framework. And it's always got a zero on it. And, you know, the, there's a couple of comics been going around in this. And, and it's it really feels that way. Like it really does feel like, oh, well, there's you know, Meteor and React and Vue. And I just literally saw a new one this morning that somebody was tweeting about. I was like, I've never heard of that. And you're saying you've been using it for weeks. I don't even know. So I know that a lot of the most common ones I've been hearing about lately are React. So if, if you don't know React, it's job, uh, it's uh, Facebook's um, one. And it doesn't have data binding and it's not an MVC. It's really very much just like bundled Vue components. I think we talked about it a little bit before. But then there's also this Vue or Vue.js, V-U-E. I don't know how you'd say it. Um, that I know, uh, Jeffrey, you've covered in Laracast, and I know, Taylor, you were liking it a little bit. And uh, I want to hear from you guys. So what's kind of, what are you seeing like, well, if, if if it were between those two, which of course it's not, are you seeing there's particular use case for one versus the other or particular pros and cons of one versus the other? Because I know a lot of a lot of the Laravel community, at least, has been kind of seeing these two bubble up in a lot of conversations. So I want to kind of get a little bit of conversation out there. Taylor, maybe you can explain why you hate React, but like <laughs> Vue, uh, because I only know about Vue through Taylor. Okay, so here's the thing, which I haven't talked about this with Jeffrey yet, but after learning Vue, I, I think I do understand React a little better because Vue was kind of a softer introduction to what a component is and and why you might want to structure your JavaScript around components, which are sort of like these little, um, uh, maybe like you have a, an let's just picture like when you have a form and you have validation errors, you have that little error box that lists the validation messages. Maybe that little error uh, listing box is a component, right? That you're reusing across multiple pages. Um, But I think that view is really cool. And to give a little background about it, it's written by a guy who used to work at Google. And so you can tell that it's quite a bit inspired by angular. And a lot of the syntax is very similar in the sense that in your markup, you can do like, Instead of ng-if, you can do v.if or v.repeat um, and stuff like that. So a lot of the a lot of the syntax is exactly the same. However, it's just a lot simpler and more streamlined. And and the documentation, um, you know, something we've talked about recently, is just a lot better. I think for getting started than Angular, or maybe it's just not so overwhelming. Is what it is. Um, but it's just really easy with Vue. You can define. Um, you know, you have your data and then you have your methods and that's really all there is to it. You define methods and they can interact with your data and then it has a really simple event system. And there's not really that kind of um, funky, I don't know what the proper word for it is, where you have like the um, HTML in your JavaScript, what's it called, JSX or whatever. Um, there's none of that with Vue really. So it's a little easier to get started with for me at least because I was coming from Angular. So it was a, an easy transition. But And so React looked really foreign. But now that I've used Vue, um, I think that going back and taking a second look at React would be a little bit easier because I'm already kind of in that component mindset. And it's just kind of a different way to do components, I think, between the two. Yeah, Vue is really interesting. The way I think of it is sort of like the JavaScript framework for the rest of us. You know, like for an example, if you if you think of something like Ember.js, their, their whole branding is sort of like the JavaScript framework for ambitious JavaScript applications, you know? So immediately that makes me sort of think, well, unless I'm building something like a GrooveShark, this really isn't for me. And you know what? I bet the reality is that couldn't be further from the truth. But that doesn't change the fact that that's sort of the branding that they give out. And then I look at Vue, Vue.js, 
And when you think about most people are probably still building somewhat traditional server-side applications where they either need to sprinkle in some JavaScript or maybe they have quite a bit. It doesn't matter. But for these situations, at least in my mind, Vue.js can be uh, a lot more familiar and a lot more accommodating uh, compared to something like React. And to clarify, I very much like React. We cover that at Laracasts. But I would be the first to admit that when it comes to Vue, I don't know, there's just something about it that feels right. It feels much more intuitive. And that doesn't even account for a lot of the things like the branding. The branding is very Laravel-like, where you go to the Vue.js website, and the documentation is wonderful. The design is wonderful. All of it just feels really good. Matt, what about you? Do you use a JavaScript framework? Yeah, I have, I've been out of JavaScript for basically since January, but in this one massive project that's consumed my whole life, and it's been Laravel and just crazy amounts of, like, you know, hand-rolled PHP. So I've been, like dying for the day to try react and i've just been waiting everyone's super excited about it i'm like watching videos about it but i haven't had a project that, have, that has come through and then we've been getting pretty irritated with our ionic apps and likely not to do a lot of angular we have some projects in angular and you know uh, ryan tablata has really been trying to get me to get on the ember train for a pretty long time and we we're seeing some value there too but i was just like the spa thing in general i just don't like it very much and i wanted i wanted to commit to it and really try it some and i've never really enjoyed it that much honestly like i really like uh, components so when we use angular i tried to do angular components so i've been waiting to re react and i finally got out of this project basically two weeks ago and i'm just like waiting for the next project to come up that gives me an excuse to try react and then all of a sudden this view stuff's coming up I'm like whoa whoa where should i start here so that's actually this is a very selfish question for me because right now i think the next project i'm on i'm probably going to use either react or view to get a get a feel for it and so I've, i'm trying to basically have you guys make the decision for me when I use it, I feel like this is exactly how I wanted a JavaScript framework to always be. Like, it's really how I sort of wanted Angular to be, except, and maybe that's just because I'm not really that great at JavaScript, and so it suits me really well because it's simpler. But it's just with Vue, you can understand all of Vue in like one day, and you pretty much know how everything works, you know everything you can do. And so that's really powerful because with Angular, I was always kind of, I don't know, I just always felt like, I'm missing I'm not I'm only using like one tenth of what Angular is giving because it has so many features. But with Vue, I, it's just a really simple thing that I can learn in one day and move on. But one thing that would be worth noting is like the community is definitely much smaller, like significantly smaller compared to Angular. So like I was saying, I hope that will change, but it is something to consider. Like, for example, if you were to search Google for Vue.js tutorials, you would find almost nothing. Um, other than the free Laracast series, which I'm going to happily promote. But yeah, honestly, other than that, there just isn't that much, but it's definitely going to change. Yeah, and at least for me, when it came to Angular, I very much liked Angular, and I used it on a few projects. But then, well, they started talking about Angular 2, and that blog post came out, and immediately it just felt so foreign to me. And honestly, it just sort of soured the whole thing for me, uh, at which point I started moving on to something else. I think it helped. It actually helped me um, when they announced that we were kind of like so far into Angular is kind of like, well, we picked one and stuck with it. You don't want to switch frameworks every single month, or whatever. And that kind of helped with the whole sunk cost fallacy because it was just like, well, regardless of how far you in Angular, you are in Angular one, you're kind of going to start from scratch with Angular two anyway. So I might as well just pick something else that gave me some freedom, both personal and, and as as a company to just kind of say like, well, let's try something else. I actually um my so my podcast five minute geek show and then my brother's podcast mildly alarming. They've got this shtick going on where basically our podcast 
podcasts are at war with each other. And so I was like, look, you guys are board game designers. You're bo- uh, podcasting about making board games. Why don't we create like a really fun little simple app for our two uh, podcasts to war with each other? You guys write it or you guys come up with it and then I'll write the thing. And so I just started it yet last night and it's all just vanilla JavaScript. I just figured I'm going to use vanilla JavaScript. I'm going to use, you know, ES6 and I'm not going to touch anything else because that's how I used to write everything. And it's just massive amounts of like the revealing model module pattern and all this kind of stuff. And and it, and I use jQuery, so I don't have to be like handwriting. Basically, it's I'm really using it just for a document selection and binding. That's about it. Just because I don't want to have to, you know, write out all that kind of stuff. But other than that, it's pretty much just like a whole bunch of, you know, it almost looks like PHP. It's just basically a whole bunch of objects and modules that call each other and expose some public methods and leave some private, and that's it. And there's something that feels good when it's a when it's something that I don't have to worry about other people coming along and picking up. But when I get into 900 lines of vanilla JavaScript, even if it's structured in a way I like it, I look at it, I'm like, yep, this should be in a framework. <laughs> but anyway. Cool. We're, we're, uh, we're running over time, so let's, let's go on to our last question. So, gentlemen, is Apple secretly slowing down our iPhones over time so that we're going to buy new ones in a few years? Discuss. I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious that they are. I hope that they're not. But for like the past couple iPhones I've had... Like you get to around that two year mark and it's just like your phone becomes unbearably slow just to do like the most basic things, just to like open your text messages or like open the phone app and then you compare it to like your friend's new phone and it's just like 60 frames per second, buttery smooth, everything's perfect. And it's like someone, I think they must be slowing these down over time. They have some kind of algorithm to where the CPU is not working as efficiently when it gets further from the manufacture date or something like that. I'm really suspicious they're doing that. I know. It's pretty interesting. I, I always assumed it was just because uh, whenever they release the next major uh, version of the OS, it's very much optimized for the current phone. So when you take like an iPhone 4 and you update it to iOS 8, well, it wasn't really built for that. <laughs> and that's where it feels incredibly slow. But uh, who knows? I said you're supposed to have your tinfoil hat on. You're not. So, you're not supposed to give me a logical answer that they have a a more complex operating system that needs more resources. <laughs> well, I've I've always so I've always with with this and with other conspiracy theories, I've always kind of like been the type to like justify it. So for this one, I'm like I think there's the fact that you're always upgrading to a newer system and it's more and more taking advantage of those things, which I'm sure has the the added benefit to Apple that older phones feel slower and slower and slower. Um, and then there's also probably a little bit of an element of like we're we're in a very rapidly approaching or very we're very quickly kind of moving forward in society. So our expectations of the capabilities and the speed of our devices is definitely going up. So I've always kind of said, okay, well that's the reason for it. But I feel like like if you do any learning about like for example advertising in the 20s and the 30s, like and you learn that for example they figured out these very rudimentary things about how to manipulate people using celebrities uh, and and they use celebrities to plant the idea that for example like an engagement ring should be a diamond and should be this very expensive thing and then you you look at all the work that they did like so many years ago to manipulate us and trick us into to and it's not just advertising all the business practices all kind of stuff if you think about the amount of planning and research and experience that's happened for corporations to be able to do to make us do certain things since 1930 and like at, at that point it becomes very difficult to 
it, you you feel very naive when you're starting to picture a world wherein you're not being actively manipulated at every step of the way because of course like they've only gotten better since then and if you look at something 80 years ago and say wow i feel super manipulated about the whole diamond ring thing or whatever else it is like they've only gotten better at it since then <laughs> so this is the most ridiculous conspiracy theory i've ever heard this is basically the idea that like the airplane contrails that you see in the sky are actually the government spraying mind-altering um, chemicals onto the entire U.S. population. The funniest part about this is that it's been around for a really long time, and I think yesterday or the day before, some pop celebrity basically put out an Instagram photo of that that she's she's pointing a picture up at the sky and saying basically chemtrails are real and you know it's got like two hundred thousand retweets or something like that by a whole bunch of twelve year olds so I think that one's about to see a resurgence. Hey, I guarantee you, someone will tweet me after this podcast and say I believe in chemtrails. I'm a believer. I just don't know how you can spray a liquid from thirty thousand feet accurately. Like you just can't do that. Well, one one last thing about the conspiracy theories. So I've you know we all when when you hear conspiracy theory, you hear crazy tinfoil nut in you know locked into his apartment with twenty years of supplies or whatever. And I mean, I have some friends and family who are kind of conspiracy theory folks who we've always kind of like they've said all these things about the governance listening to you and all this kind of stuff, and we've always kind of rolled our eyes. And then like over the last few years, like more and more of their conspiracy theories have been proven to be like absolute reality. And like similarly, like more and more of things that were like. You know, we saw it in like maybe not in 1984, but some kind of like, you know, dystopia. And then it's like, oh, no, that's actually happening. And when we read the dystopia five years ago that was written 30 years ago, we said, oh, my gosh, that's never going to happen. And all of a sudden we're like, no, that's actually our day to day reality. That's terrifying to go back to those people and specifically say, I'm sorry, you were right. I've done that several times. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm telling them they were right because they were proven right in the public. Yep. Any kind of privacy-related conspiracy is probably true. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to uh, this episode of the Laravel Podcast. It was a pleasure uh, talking to both of you, and thank you listeners for taking a listen to us. Um, remember, uh, Laracon US and Laracon EU, uh, they're both taking sign-up still, right, Taylor? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So make sure to, to come on out to one of those, um, and if you need help uh, you know, persuading your supervisor that it's worth going to just ask on Twitter and plenty of people will be able to give stories about how, how incredible and worthwhile it is. So that's it for this week. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all next time. 